0: The Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Colonel John Conrad, MSM, CD, commander of 41 Canadian Brigade Group.
1: What I have learned, though, Mike, is on the far side of bravery, if you look at it as a coin, you walk to one side of the bravery coin and there is a deep drop face of cowardice. And you have got to walk that line.
0: Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Last night was my dining out as the Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. I spent a great night with some good friends, and we shared some good laughs, most of them at my expense, and I got to thank some very important people in my life for supporting me during that term. The interesting thing, as the podcast goes, I have three other recordings already done as a Chief Warrant Officer as the host of the show. However, by the time I release my next episode, I will be a captain, so it will cause a little bit of confusion in the future of the program where I'm speaking as a Chief Warrant Officer and yet... It is known that I'm a captain. So hopefully we get through that. It should only affect three episodes at the most. And once we get over that growing pain, everything will be fine. Another small victory for the Canadian Military History Podcast. I have, just by coincidence, interviewed another Navy guest, and that is Colonel John Conrad, who is our guest today. He started off in the Royal Canadian Navy and then transferred to the Army in the Logistics Corps. And I don't know if I mentioned this during Major Rich IQ's interview. But the logistics corps is essentially, this is their little trademark, is the difference between click and bang. And that's sort of a metaphor for saying that they get you your bullets and your food and everything you need to do your job on time and properly maintained. The logistics corps typically works within a base or within a service battalion or a support group. And it's no small feat that they do everything. They fix our trucks. They drive the trucks. They break the trucks. All right. (laughs) That's not very nice. But anyhow, they cook the food. They take the garbage away. They provide the clothes. They clean the clothes. They bring the clothes back. They decide how things are going to get to where it needs to be. And sometimes they have to do that tactically. In other words, no lights, camouflage, And with a defensive or even offensive posture, Colonel Conrad has served his career as a logistics officer, and he's even commanded one service battalion in Western Canada. He now holds the appointment of the commander of 41 Canadian Brigade Group, which is essentially the Army Reserve of Alberta. He has partnered with my good friend, Emmett Kelly, who is the brigade sergeant major out there in 41 Brigade. Here's my interview with Colonel John Conrad. Colonel Conrad, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mike. It's good to be with you.
0: You and I first met on Exercise Golden Coyote in South Dakota this past June 2014.
1: Yeah, that's correct. It was one of my first trips south since taking command of 41 Canadian Brigade Group in terms of working with the U.S. National Guard and the U.S. Army Reserve and a wonderful state, a wonderful training area and opportunity. So yeah, it was good to meet up with you and your Brigade Commander there.
0: Absolutely. And I almost stumbled on the word because it's so hard to say Golden Coyote. They insisted on us saying Golden Coyote instead of Coyote. They wanted to make sure we didn't say Coyote when we introduced the exercise, but it's their annual collective training event. And how long did they say they've been doing it? for?
1: I think it was, uh, putting me on the spot here, but I think it was something <laughs> like 25 to 30 years. So, I yeah, mean, I uh, so. Yeah, it has been a long time and a wonderful format in terms of working with their First Nations communities down in South Dakota and lending support to the domestic operational side. Yeah, a fabulous format.
0: I believe you're right, between 30 and 25 years, not to put you on the spot.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, it's uh, now that I think about it, the Americans love to give away a coin at the end of these things, and I think the coin this year was three Roman numeral Xs. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so I'm not a betting man, but I bet it is actually <laughs> 30. I I'd bet the farm on that one. Absolutely, sir.
0: Well, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you ready to go?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel sufficiently warmed up and ready to try and represent myself. So yeah, let's go.
0: Excellent. Sir, why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing, I grew up on a farm, right, in southwestern Ontario, which doesn't sound like the end of the earth (laughs) in this day and age, but back in the day, I think we got three channels. And if it was windy, you could pick up buffalo as well for a fourth. Didn't have a huge amount of cash. My dad had been in the Navy and we had a small hobby farm and we worked that part time. And yeah, I, I had from a very early age a sense that I wanted to, I wanted to serve my country. I don't know if it was related to dad's time with the Royal Canadian Navy, and he only did a what we would call today a short service engagement. I don't know if it was that, or reading books about the Admiral's Wolf Pact and what the RCN did with convoy escort during the war, but I had that desire to serve. And the other side of it, too, was I wanted to challenge myself. I love working outdoors. I mean, right now, I drive a desk here (laughs) in my civilian career, and as an Army Reserve Brigade Commander, there's never enough field time. But I've always been a person that likes to work with my hands and to test the metal, so to speak.
0: Excellent. A lot of my guests have reflected on their father's period of service as one of the driving moments to get them into the Canadian Forces. Was your father an NCM or an officer?
1: My dad was an NCM. And a rating. And we went through uh, HMCS Cornwallis, and I forget the name, I think, was he on the Ottawa or in the Ottawa, as they say in the Navy? <laughs> what I do remember with certitude is he told me that his job was to put the wheel chalk under the Sikorsky helicopter when it <laughs> came into land. I don't know if it was in the era before the bear trap, right. that thing he do that the Navy has to drag the chopper down. But yeah, I do remember him telling me that. And, you know, he's still alive, so I guess I could go <laughs> and double check that. But yeah, it's without a doubt, his service, it planted a seed in a young farm kid. It planted a seed that there was a wider world out there, and I wanted to contribute to it and to my country.
0: Right. And I believe wrangling aircraft into the hangar is the job of a bosun, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's... Perhaps that was his trade.
1: Yeah, you are correct, sir. Yeah.
0: What was the world like when you joined, sir?
1: Well, I joined in the summer of 1983. I was about a month out of high school. The Cold War, as we call it, had not quite thought out. We were still, (laughs) I guess, still about six or seven years from the Berlin Wall coming down and Looking back on that time, I know that Russia was in Afghanistan, right? still still going hard. The Olympics had been boycotted in 1980. Yeah, it was a kind of a pessimistic kind of outlook, right. looking back on it in terms of the chances of human survival and just trying to get by. I remember very clearly when I was with Royal Roads, I started with the military college system. And I remember protesters coming to our cadet parades in Victoria with all kinds of signage, largely targeted at the cruise missile testing that they did not want to have happened on Canadian soil, a cruise missile back in the day, but in general, to be a young man and of some, not that I was the Wayne Gretzky of my hometown, but to be a young man and choose the army was generally considered a negative choice, a poor choice and a waste of a life. I remember that even to this day. It was also the era where the United States had been out of Vietnam for about six or seven years, but there was a prevailing feeling that the U.S. Army and the soldiering in general was the hobby or the profession of someone who just couldn't get by in a more successful occupation.
0: Well, the term I've heard is employer of last resort. Yeah. And perhaps that would be the term that was used.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a a very apt way to put it. I would agree. And yeah, that's the period I remember it. It was before the Grenada invasion that the Marines had done, but it was a period of not a great amount of optimism for the planet and also for the profession of arms. There I was signing the dotted line at the recruiting center in Kitchener, Ontario and being damned happy about it.
0: Well, that transitions into the next question. What were you like when you joined?
1: Yeah, well, you've seen me recently, Mike. And you know what? uh, When I was a young man, I was resilient. I was extremely physically fit in terms of working on the farm, having part-time jobs and trying to tuck money away for education or automobile, whatever the need. I think in 1983, I know I was a very idealistic person. I believe in humanity. I believe in mankind. I believe man is essentially good. And I was very, very keen to contribute and to help influence things inside my own country and even on the planet. We were and are a peacekeeping nation back in the day, and I had visions of contributing to that. I was also, I'd have to say, I was a lot more resilient morally and physically back in 1983, like all of us are as young people <laughs> stepping off onto the street of main life. And I'd have to say, between us, I was naive. And the world, it makes us wise, but what's the old saying, we're too (laughs) late-wise. But yeah, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to contribute, I guess, is how I would summarize that.
0: Right. So as you've contributed, what was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement?
1: Yeah, ironically, now sitting here in my 32nd year of service with the Canadian Army, my greatest achievement came late in my career when I was the commanding officer of the NSE, the Logistics Battalion in southern Afghanistan in 2006. And I look back on that, I think about Afghanistan every day of my life, and I look back on the mission that we had, the battalion I had of 281 soldiers, all different trades in a logistics outfit, as you can expect, 225,000 square kilometers uh, comprising our area of operation in Kandahar province, and at times, lines of communication to our supported battle group, Task Force Orion, a splendid, splendid infantry battle group that would often exceed 300 kilometers in length. And 300 kilometers as a line of communication. Field Marshal Montgomery in the Second World War would not have accepted a line for 21st Army Group longer than 150K <laughs> in a much different type of battlefield than we found ourselves on in Afghanistan. More of a linear construct where as you drive forward on that 150 kilometers, things are getting more and more dangerous inside the combat zone. In the kind of battlefield we faced, every kilometer you go, the enemy could or might not be all around you. It was an incredible accomplishment, and I know I sound like I'm buttering my own bread, (laughs) but what I mean by that is the accomplishment of our soldiers, uh, my logisticians, my logistics folks, wrench benders, truck drivers, and the resilience of the infantry battle group. Quite frankly, and I have stated this publicly before, the laws of war are very unforgiving, the laws of administration, and you look back at what we did with that battle group trying to be everywhere with the amount of combat power we had, the elastic of sustainment should have snapped. By every known precept in the Army Staff College or Canadian Forces College or any Western college, any Western military college, that line should have snapped, right. but it didn't because the soldiers understood the gravity of the situation in the summer of 2006. And I look back on that, I'm just, I'm very proud, not necessarily the pride of vanity. As you know, I'm not the Wayne Gretzky of the Army, but I'm, what I'd like to say, a stay-at-home defenseman, to use a hockey analogy. But I look back on the accomplishment of the men and women who are under my command, and I feel this enormous sense of pride and accomplishment. Yeah, I'd have to say that was my greatest achievement, and there I was as a 42-year-old battalion commander, so I laid bloomer to a certain degree.
0: If I put everything you've said together, I got you. you grew up in southwestern Ontario, is that right? That's right, yeah, near Listowel. And now you live out in Edmonton?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Is that where all the Wayne Gretzky analogies <laughs> keep coming from? I, I'm just putting it all together, but anyhow. Yeah,
1: no, that's very fair to suggest that. Uh, yeah, I guess I look at Gretzky as the personification of excellence in terms of hockey. I'm not, you know, I am a Leaf fan at heart. And I admire the Oilers and I cheer for all Canadian teams when I have to. But when I refer to Gretzky, I set him as a, kind of the personification of someone who's really on their game. Right.
0: Absolutely, sir.
1: Yeah. I think that is it. When I look back on what I have done with my life in the Army, and there is, when you look at the context of how we were capped, they added things to the battle group and to the task force, but the logisticians were capped. And looking at the context and being away from sustained combat for a number of years, I could have said that as well. Sir, who
0: is your greatest influence or who's the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I know that you currently work with quite a memorable character, but anyhow, I'll leave that to you to answer.
1: Yeah, I thought a lot about this question and you are right about that memorable character. He's he's a live wire, to be sure. And I'm thinking of my Brigade Sergeant Major there, Emmett Kelly, who's always got a wry comment. And whether it's pouring rain in the field or whether we're heading for the airport, he's always got a slightly humorous take on things that are often less than funny, which is a, a a valuable skill to have as a soldier. One would almost say necessary. I've been thinking about the question. And in terms of the people that have had an influence on me or that have kind of shaped me as a soldier, as an officer, and there have been about two or three, and there's a couple. And some of them are known on to me only through history and academic, like reading books. I, I was a big fan of Julian Binks, right. the uh, commander of the Canadian Corps during Vimy Ridge, and just his earthy approach to soldiering, not putting on airs, coming to look in on a regiment or a battalion inspection, and the same easy grace of a farmer leaning over a fence to ask a neighbor about a hayfield or the quality of hay. I love the earthiness of Bing and his social intelligence. Another guy that always, I still admire to this day, not his political cause, but his leadership was Robert E. Lee from the Army of Northern Virginia. <laughs> and what I love about Lee was what I learned from him and reading about him, and I still read about him today, well, you could lay the whip and take the fight to the enemy and prosecute violence as we are supposed to do as soldiers, management and prosecution of violence, but still retain an intense humanity and courtesy, respect for your opponent. And there's so much in how Lee handled himself in and around his career, but the period of the U.S. Civil War that I found very inspiring. I guess closer to home, like real life people, there are Lieutenant Colonel Ken Baselt, my first CO of a service battalion. I got to tell you, he changed my life in the Army. When I was first posted to the field, it wasn't my first posting. I started, believe it or not, as a commissioned naval officer. And then I was reclassified or remustered, as we called it in the day. (laughs) And I had my pick of about two or three trades because of my vision category. And I picked combat logistics. And I started out on the base in Kingston while I redid my courses as a commissioned second lieutenant. I was very close. This was in that 1987 to 90 period. I was very close to quitting and working on the base in between courses at base board. And Mike, it was soul destroying. And I would come back and fill out forms and work the logistics system under my boss on the base. And I couldn't see it. I couldn't see how anyone. And I'm not trying to denigrate the fine work that we do in the Institutional Army, which I have a much greater appreciation for now. <laughs> but as a young man, I learned a lot from the example of the, I guess he would have been the base transportation officer. He was the field grade guy I was under there. And I, I don't want to say his name because I know in my heart he's a good man and grew up in a certain system. But for a young officer, I was going to quit. My wife talked me out of it. She said, let's give the field one chance. Sure enough, I did. I finally got posted in the summer of 1990. I got married. We came out to Calgary. And the first thing that when we went into the mess, here's this lieutenant. I'm nothing. To my brother officers, I've done nothing, right? I'm just newly arrived. And the first guy to come up to me in the mess is this young-looking fella with two glasses of wine, one for me and one for my wife. And it turns out that he was the commanding officer of the battalion. Wow. And I would just come from a place where I was not to approach majors, I was not to do... Things were very, very formal in the 1980s CFB construct. At least my major on the base had shaped it that way. I had a much, much different view of what the Canadian Forces was about. And then showing up in the field army and watching this guy who had a warm availability, like high degree of intelligence. He was a Remi officer, but he'd served in Germany. So he'd been over close to the real fight in those days, the Cold War and the Fulga Gap and all those places. And just watching how he would spend time with the juniorest, newest subaltern, and that made a deep impression on me and on my wife. And you know what? We'll never forget that. For the rest of our mm. lives, we won't forget that act of kindness. Right. He shaped me a lot because I make sure that I take care of them all. And when you get into a room, there's people of high rank, there's people of mid and lower. You have to pay attention to all of them. And so I give Ken a lot of credit, Ken Basalt. Of course, but Rick Hillier as well. I mean, uh, watching General Hillier in action as our chief of defense staff, the, the best chief of defense staff we've had, in my view, since General Dextras, he was phenomenal. But the same things that made Ken felt great and so impactful to a young officer who wasn't worth dirt at CFB Kingston, Hillier had those same qualities, General Hillier, those same qualities, the same availability, the same concern, and the same I don't know what what it is that when he's talking to you or asking you to do something, you do not want to fail, not out of fear, but out of, well, I guess it is fear, though, isn't it? Out of fear of disappointment. That's right. I'd have to say the men and women, and there have been others that I've met that are cut from that same cloth. They have a little bit of Robert E. Lee, a little bit of Julian Bing in them. I couldn't pinpoint any one particular person. There have certainly been a couple of bad examples that I've learned from, but by and large, most people are solid and of good character and quality that I've been able to rub elbows with. And they're the ones, when ruminating on your question, they're the ones that came to heart. Absolutely. One glass of wine. (laughs) I stayed in the Army for 32 years instead of four.
0: What was the name of that unit, sir, that you joined?
1: It was called One Service Battalion, and I went on to command that unit. In fact, I held every command job that unit had available to an officer. I took the NSC from that service battalion to, to, over to war in southern Afghanistan in 06. It fascinates me, the impact, the people that help you up and lend you a hand in life. And, and sometimes they don't, I don't even know if Ken knows it because he treated everybody that way. But the impact that one individual can have on you and the bow wave effect through decades, and it's influenced the way. You know, I was generally was the person I was in 1983, although I confess to you that I was naive. You generally are the person you are by the time you get out of kindergarten. But in terms of being able to skate on the ice and be the officer I needed to be, true to myself, I hadn't seen it executed properly until I met Ken Bissell. I thought it was all about, you know, don't talk to the major's wife. And my wife had been told a number of times her dress was inappropriate. It wasn't inappropriate. Hell, she's she's in third-year university. Anyway, I digress, and this could go public if it's put up as a podcast you probably intended to.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure as the CEO of Wind Service Battalion, you've had plenty of opportunities to greet young lieutenants with their two glasses of wine yourself. Yes,
1: that's true. That's true and appropriate.
0: (laughs) Sir, what is the greatest challenge that you've had to overcome?
1: Greatest challenge I've ever had to overcome is surviving the tour of 2006 in Kandahar, and I don't mean physically surviving. That was a summer. I know that you will remember the summer of 2006, Mike, that the Taliban had promised their leadership that Kandahar City would be back under their control, back in their hands. It was a summer of a great amount of combat activity, a long, long way from Kandahar Airfield. What we found when we got there that the battle group that we had for that space, that area of operation, well, although it was a fine battle group with some of the best equipment and the lab three was clearly the weapon of choice that summer. There just was not enough combat power to go around. So as a result, Task Force Orion, currently in hopes, battle group was everywhere, and the lines of communication that I mentioned earlier became extremely long. We lost people. Not all of my soldiers came home, and of the ones who were there, the moral blows of IED attacks or not having been involved in an IED incident and just the soldiers' logic of, oh my God, everyone in my platoon, and I'm talking about my transportation platoon, Everyone in that platoon had been in an IED incident or been around some sort of small arms fire exchange except one man. And every time that one corporal got into his truck and drove down the road, my God, the the pressure on him when I get it, because I've seen nothing thus far, it's going to be enormous. Hmm. And so the challenge for me to overcome was living through that experience where you know your logistics unit is too small, you know your lines of communication are well beyond what even a robust unit would be able to take on, and then just having things tear you down What I found for me, my war, if you'll forgive the term, was having my bank account. Man's courage is very much like a bank account, and you're constantly making withdrawals. And for me, it wasn't fear of the Taliban. I mean, hell, I've got all these great soldiers and infantry around me whenever we go anywhere, but fear of what I had done. Had I made a good enough argument to NDHQ, to General Frazier, to all of the powers that be to have enough logisticians on this tour to sustain it and not have Canada embarrassed. And the great poignant part of my challenge was getting hit in a double IED attack on the 22nd of July and living through that. And you go from colonel to corporal immediately. <laughs> in this kind of battle space, it doesn't matter how many bars or swords or crowns and pips you have on your jacket. You're a leader, but you're down there helping with the cordon, evacuating the dead, evacuating the wounded. Having to live through that and then appear the next day on calf as the colonel and I'm not really proud to talk about that, but there, there is uh, because what I have learned though, Mike, is on the far side of bravery. If you look at it as a coin, you walk to one side of the bravery coin, and there is a deep drop face of cowardice, and you have got to walk that line and uh, learning, learning to live with that, and to realize that yeah, I'm going to do my job, and, I, and I'm going to stumble, and I'm going to follow the light of truth, and, and I'm going to lead these people. Along the way are all kinds of demons you've got to beat down. Maybe that's Colonel John Conrad, and maybe I'm the first officer that ever had that happen to him, but I guess that's just the way I'm wired. I found that tour, I found that tour hard because as much as I enjoyed it, and I love those men and women, they've got a godfather for the rest of their lives. The reservists, reserve infantry I had with me on that tour, the clerks that came, some of them came from across Canada. They've got a godfather for life. (laughs) But by the time that tour was done, my bank account was in the red. (laughs) I had a hard time portraying the mask of command, the mask of uh, everything's fine. Because, you know, it was a long way from fine. Right. We did an exceptional job over there. But there is a price to pay for that. And for me, the worst part was sending folks into harm's way when you know that you don't quite have enough of them. And for me, that's the greatest challenge, was seeing it through to the end of the seven months on that tour. And things improved somewhat after that in terms of the numbers of logisticians. So they went from 281 to 400. Wow! Plus, they got a contracted support capability of another 300 on the on the Kandahar airfield. So a lot more logistics oomph. I mean, the Army is a learning institution. Learn quickly on that one. But, you know, when you go away to peace for decades, you forget what our grandfathers knew so well. You do need these things. Absolutely. You do need logistics on the battlefield. And all these weird little cap badges with the snakes on them, <laughs> with the cross paper clips. The jokes are great because they foster camaraderie. But over time, you forget what they're for. And you're like really in our deep hearts core. And yeah, rambling a little bit on you now, but... That's fine. <laughs> let's, let's call that one my greatest challenge. Yeah. Incredible.
0: Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak about what's coming up for yourself and 41 Canadian Brigade Group.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. The brigade has got a ton coming up this year in terms of, you had mentioned Golden Coyote. I'll use the correct pronunciation. (laughs) We're going to continue to participate and invite their participation north of the border with us because I find that working with the U.S. National Guard and Army Reserve, it brings a cachet and excitement that my soldiers love. So, We're going to continue that, and we're going to grow it as much as we realistically can under the current constraints of cross-border and what have you. We had a terrific collective exercise this past August in Wainwright, and right now we're planning one that's going to challenge us even a little bit further and build on some of the lessons and some of the areas that we think we need a bit of work on. And to that point, we're also putting together a skill-at-arms competition. Soldering should be fun, Mike. I I know that you agree with me on that. I do, I do. So this year, I want to put together a skill-at-arms competition so the soldiers can get inside the section and polish and hone and compete with those basic fundamental skills. It will be fun, but there's a didactic purpose for it too. What we learned on the exercise belligerent and grizzly this past August was the energy's there, the excitement's there, but we have forgotten a lot of these fundamentals that we had before the 10-year war in Afghanistan. So that's something exciting that's coming up for us. Yeah, it's beyond that. It's just to continue to grow the brand of the Army in Alberta. Alberta's a great place to live it's a fantastic place to be a soldier. We just want to leverage that spirit of positivism and continue to get better. Even old farts like the brigade commander want to get better. (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) sir. Yeah. I
0: heard you have a book. Would you like to speak about your book?
1: I'd love to, and I have been. (laughs) The book is called What the Thunder Said, and you probably picked up from my tone. When I came back from Kandahar, I was an angry person. (laughs) And I felt I needed to set down in words the story of my greatest achievement, which was my 2006 NSC and what those men and women did. And that achievement, that story is written in what the Thunder said. And it really sets the context for that first mission in Kandahar when we moved into the South. The other aspect of the book is it's written a bit like a memoir, but it also has a bit of a historical context to it as well. It serves as a bit of a history of the Canadian Army logistics. So believe it or not, a book about logistics did very well. It got picked up by the Military Book of the Month Club and it went on to become a Canadian bestseller. So I guess you could put that down as a subordinate achievement to the one I talked about in this interview. Right. But it's, again, they seem to be joined at the hip because it's really the same story.
0: Is it available on Amazon?
1: It is. In fact, it's best to buy it for your Kobo reader. If you buy it at the store in chapters, it's more expensive, but it is available through Amazon as well as my book about the peacekeeping era.
0: Well, I hope that any listeners will go to the Canadian Military History Podcast webpage and click on my Amazon link and buy your book, and that way they can help you out and they can help me out at the same time.
1: Well, that would be great. I I would welcome any comments on the book or keeping the dialogue going because that's the only way we learn and get better as an institution. Absolutely.
0: Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. I feel like I've rambled and it's probably your most disjointed podcast that you're going to put up there. But at the same time, its I think it's emblematic of the kind of career that you can have in the Canadian Army or the Canadian Armed Forces. And they're like snowflakes. There are no two of them that are alike. And when I look back on my career so far, 32 years in, it is such a wild, wild, exciting ride. And the people you meet and the experiences that you have, good and bad are absolutely incredible. And I think to summarize my interview, it's life is an adventure, and some of the very best adventures that are available to you are adventures as a Canadian soldier. And that's probably the best place to leave it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for sharing your adventure with the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm very grateful that you took the time out to be a guest on the show. I don't know when we'll have an opportunity to meet again, but I do hope we do get a chance to meet in the future.
1: Well, I certainly hope so. Take care, sir. Yeah, you
0: too, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelecoqcmhp@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. And tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Productions.